0: a series called God Space, and I had a fun time teaching this in uh, last night's service and this morning's service, and I'm going to dive into this as we go to 1 Peter 3, verse 15 today, and the title of today's message is God Space Part 1, Engage the Mission, and this series, as Caleb pointed out, is based on this book, God Space, by Doug Pollock. I was first introduced to this book when I went through my Acts 29 assessment, uh, to become an Acts 29 church planter about 10 years ago. Uh, as I was kind of emerging into this new season of grace and teaching grace and being under grace, I kind of had to unlearn a lot of the ways that I had done evangelism in the past. And as I was talking to my assessment team, like, man, uh, I really asked the Lord to help me really learn what it means to be what the Bible calls the friend of sinners. And... Um, I feel like I need to relearn this. And, and they, they encouraged me to read this book here. And I think it was probably about nine years ago, I shared at least one, maybe two messages from this book. And I thought, ah, it'd be great to revisit this idea. And so this will be a multi-week series uh, on this topic of just creating God's space and, and reaching people for Christ and evangelism and, and what that looks like for us. The first verse I want to read before we go to 1 Peter is Romans one sixteen, Famous verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So according to that verse, what is the power of God? What is it? It is the gospel. And nothing else in scripture, uh, other than the person of Jesus Christ, is called the power of God, other than the gospel. So how powerful must the gospel be when you consider the fact that God parted the Red Seas and God made the heavens and the earth, and all the miraculous stories of God's people throughout Scripture. When what is called the power of God is reserved for the person of Christ and for the gospel, how powerful must it be? The gospel is what you need. It's what I need. It's what our families need. It's what our community needs. It's what our country needs right now. You can change who's in office at the state level, you can change who's in the White House, but until you change the human heart, ain't nothing going to change in our country. You could change legislation at the Supreme Court level and battle it out and, and your your worldview can win. Doesn't matter. If our nation doesn't have an encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the trajectory of our country will inevitably continue to go the wrong direction. And so this is what our country needs. We need people who are willing to share it, live it. And as it says in 1 Peter in a moment, you'll see, to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. So where do we start? The Lord spoke to me years back. If you want to change the world, start by changing your world. We're obsessed every day with headlines and what's happening in Washington and what's happening in in Hollywood and and you know we'll we'll applaud or criticize and say oh they need to stop that or they need to, this we need more of this or more of that. We need to focus more on changing our world than changing the world. Who are the people that God has put in your life? What pocket of lostness has God strategically put you in for the sake of his name, for the sake of the kingdom? That's where we start. And I said a few weeks ago that we believe that the great hope of the world is gospel-centered churches. And the reason for that is that gospel-centered churches are filled with gospel-centered people who make Jesus Christ's mission their mission. And in surveys and polls taken of the church, the number that I came across that was pretty consistent and pretty close to this number is that only 10% of Christians consider themselves to have the gift of evangelism. That means 90% 90 of the people like you and me that were polled uh, in in this survey said, that's not for me. I'm not good at that. That's for somebody. That's for my pastor. That's for the really outgoing person. That's for the person who's really, you know, really evangelistic and loves to do outreaches. And, you know as well as I do, if that's a true number, that means one in ten Christians consider themselves to have the gift of evangelism, and there's far less of that number who are actually doing it because of the busyness of life, the busyness of family, because of um, the tyranny of the urgent, whether it's family, work, or hobby. And so Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. The fields are white unto the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I don't think he would say anything different today in western New York. I don't think he'd say anything today different today in America. There's nothing wrong with the harvest. The problem is the same problem it's always been. The workers are few. We dismiss ourselves, leave the work up to somebody else, or we get too consumed, too myopic, too busy. And yet Jesus says the workers are few. So will you join Jesus Christ in his mission? That's my challenge today. And I, I, that's a, a big part of the, the challenge of this book is to engage in the mission of Jesus Christ, to embrace the mission of Jesus Christ and embrace not changing the whole, you don't have to worry about the whole world. Jesus is the savior of the whole world, but to engage your world. But let's first look at how not to do it. Made this video about 10 years ago with some friends. Uh, Billy Wiley, this guy, uh, is going to show us how not to do evangelism. I once had a friend named Billy Wiley. Billy was, um, zealous. He thought that since his name was Billy, that he was called to be a great evangelist like Billy Sunday or Billy Graham. Instead, he taught me some ways not to witness. So here's Billy Wiley's top ten ways not to witness to do evangelism.
1: Look! I am a servant of the Lord God Almighty! You shall me! Wait very you, Havity! It's all life! Why, you! Ah, the Bible says turn the other cheek. Mine with me! Ah. 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 Come on. Come on. Excuse me. Are you a Christian? Man, I'm not into that stuff. I said are you a Christian? What must I do to be saved? Excuse me. Hey, I got a question for you. If you were to die tonight. Whoa! Do you know where you would go? That's a gun. Let me pray for you. Okay. Have you obtained unto the ways of the just? For thou hast been purchased by blood for the foundation of the earth. What? But I'm not trying to junior! My jet Alfred! Whoa, whoa, whoa!
0: Billy once heard a story about 19th century evangelist Charles Finney and how Finney walked into a factory and just stared at a guy and the guy repented right there on the spot. Billy uh Billy thought he would try that too.
1: Are you okay? Do you see eternity in my eyes? I feel the power of conviction in your soul? Um, no. Just wait a little longer.
0: I don't think so. Yeah, it was cool, yeah. Yep. Cool. Jesus loves you, man. Ugh. I'm going to have to get back to you.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, he loves you so much. What the... Uh, I don't know which theater. I'm gonna Maybe dance like a fake girl to dance down the streets, cause I know last time I made a Oh, what are you doing? I'm Israel, and you're the walls of Jericho! Okay, let's get out of here. What? Ladies? Ladies? <laughs> I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Talking about why what are you doing? Oh the way I see it, because their eternal soul is in the balance. There is no method off limits. And I mean no method.
0: Zeal always chooses the most radical route. Wisdom chooses the most fruitful. We need zeal and wisdom. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to be rude or weird or strange. Just be yourself. Just share the good news of God's grace that changed your life. Just tell your story. That's evangelism. And don't forget, Jesus promised he'd be with you wherever you go. Thank you, Billy. That was very helpful. So I want to talk about creating God's space in two places. Number one, first, in, in your heart. That you would have room in your heart for his mission. That what concerns Jesus would, would concern us. Number two, God's space in your relationships. Where is this space in your life to share your faith? For years we've communicated, actually from the beginning of Grace Life, we've communicated that we won't do and don't do a lot of extra meetings. Matter of fact, one of the only extra meetings I think we've done where we'd like invite in a guest is I think in our fifth year uh, celebrate anniversary celebration. And then uh, annually, we brought in uh, Andrew and John Eastman. Um, and they're actually coming in, in here again in June. A little uh, commercial there. But, uh, but that, that's it. Other than that, we, we've communicated. We don't do a lot of extra stuff outside of, you know, weekend gatherings and, and groups because we want to encourage you to have open spaces in your schedule to use that to engage a pocket of lostness uh, and, and to reorient your life around Christ's mission to reach people for his name, so First Peter three fifteen, it was right there at the end of that video as well. Peter says, "But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect." So first, he says, "In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord." I want you to think about what does it mean when you say Jesus is Lord. When you acknowledge his lordship and you say you're the king, what what does that imply? What implications does that have for someone's life? Well, first of all, what you say goes, not what I say goes. right? If there's a disagreement between me and the king, the king's right, not me. So he decides what is good. He decides what is true. He decides the course of my life. In other words, I arrange my life around him. But that's not how a lot of people treat Jesus. A lot of people treat Jesus like, he has to sort of arrange his life around me. But to say you're Lord means you're the, you're the center of my solar system and I'm arranging everything around you. And by the way, everything works better when it's arranged around Jesus, right? My, my family... My money, my resources, my dreams, my hopes, my my everything. I arrange it around him, and it's designed, everything is designed to be subjected to his lordship. And when it is, it actually works properly in my life. I don't idolize it. It doesn't become too important. And it's all aimed at his glory. <clears throat> and so that's what it means to say he's lord. Everything orbits around him. Make him the most important thing in our lives. And what happens when we do that is we say, Your heart is my heart. Your mission is my mission. Now, would anybody say to our community, You know what, Avon? You can go to hell. Or would anybody say to Jesus, You know, what Jesus wants really isn't that important. Nobody would actually say that. And yet, in some ways, that's what we are indirectly saying when we aren't interested in the mission of Jesus Christ and the one who said, Giving the mandate to his disciples and through his disciples to the church, go ye into all nations and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of nations. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you go, I'm one of those 10%, i am one of the 90% who, who can't. I'm not one of those 10%. Uh, so I'm, I'm just not good at it. I'm not gifted at it. First of all, if you're saved, you already know more about salvation than any unbeliever you'll ever meet. Just for starters. Second of all, can I remind you that any time God called someone in Scripture, I think almost every time, they gave a reason why God got the wrong guy. Right? Jeremiah says, uh, "I'm a child." Gideon said, "I'm afraid." Moses said, "I don't know how to talk." Deborah said, "I'm a woman." Peter said, "I'm too much of a sinner." And every time Jesus is like, "No, nah, I got the right guy. I got the right gal." And Paul explains later why God picked those people and why God picked you and me. He says, did not God choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? Congratulations. The reason God chose us is because we're weak and foolish. How did you know you're called to be a pastor? And how did you know you're called to go into full-time ministry? Well, apparently, I'm weak and foolish enough to do it. And God wanted to take an ordinary person with a lot of flaws and use me to do things for his name. And that's the same with everybody that he calls. So to you, God says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. We probably wouldn't have designed it this way, but God chose to use us as a means for reaching people. That his salvation plan would be brought to this world through the mouths of his people. Now, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. It would have been a lot easier, right, if, if God like, would have written it in creation somewhere. And even though creation does testify of the glory of God, it's his church that preaches the gospel. It would have been easier if it was in creation, right? Just a guy driving along to work, you know, reflecting on the things of life, and is my life going the right direction, and what is the meaning of life anyway? And all of a sudden he looks out, and as he's thinking about, there it is, John 1, 1, up in the clouds. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is this cloud structure saying to me? I would have done it that way. Or maybe the birds chirping, you know, somebody going on a hike and reflecting on the deep things of life, and all of a sudden they hear, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only... Begot-. What's going on? Seems like it would have been easier that way. But it's the obedience of his people to carry the heart of Christ... And the word of Christ to our generation. Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So, what is a witness? I want you to think about that. What does a witness do in a courtroom? Somebody who, under oath, talks about what they've seen and heard and experienced. What they've observed. And Peter says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, that we're living out this hope. It's real, it's tangible, it's observable. And it preaches Christ to people to the point where it has to come out in words at times. I, I remember the story of John Wesley as I was sharing this message in his own conversion as he, you know, we've talked a lot in this church about how you can be just as lost in religion as you can irreligion and just as unsaved and dead in religion as you can irreligion. Well, John Wesley, when he was a young man, Church of England knew nothing of salvation by grace through faith. He was a legalist, and he wasn't saved. He actually went as as a missionary to America, and it was a failed missionary experience. And so he's heading home by ship to uh, England with his tail tucked between his legs, so to speak. And that was when a great storm came upon the water. And he feared for his life along with the other passengers. While he's fearing for his life, he sees this small group of Moravians. You remember the Moravians? They were that that great uh, missionary denomination, that great missionary movement uh, that believed that to be a true disciple of Jesus that would culminate by going to all nations, like Jesus said. Pretty radical denomination. And they actually led uh, a hundred-year prayer meeting, which, by the way, is slightly above average for a prayer meeting. So there's some of those people there. And um, they're quietly sitting down on the deck of the ship while all this chaos is happening. And they're singing a hymn. And Wesley goes over to him and he's like, what are you doing? Don't you know that our lives are lost? And they said, yeah, we know. We know, but we're okay. We know our Redeemer lives. And in the end, we shall see him on that day. And of course, the ship didn't sink. Wesley's life went on. That's why we know about him. And later on, though, he said about that experience, basically, I realized in that moment, what they got, I don't got. And it was not long after that, that Wesley attended a public reading of Scripture, uh, which was something they would do in London at that time. Some of the churches would just have, in the evenings during the week, the Christians would just come and just listen to public reading of Scripture. It's pretty cool. And he was listening to the epistles being read. And while he was listening to the epistles of Paul being read, Wesley had what he later called a heart strangely warmed. The Holy Spirit began to move in his heart and show him true salvation. His heart was regenerated. And so what did he see? He saw hope. He saw this tangible hope in this small group of Moravian Christians to the point where it shocked him. And it, it stirred him and shook him out of his spiritual slumber to the point where he would long for something more. Now, I do believe that God does have instantaneous supernatural conversions. I mean, look at Paul the Apostle, who was Saul, on the road to Damascus, heading out to kill Christians. Light from heaven comes, blinds him. The voice from heaven says, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, who are you, Lord? Good question. Because whoever is going to answer that question is probably the Lord, if they had the power to do what they just did to him. And the voice says, and how stunned must he have been to hear, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. God does that. It's amazing. I love it. But most of the time, and stats bear this out, matter of fact, stats say that 97% of people that come to Christ claim that they came to Christ through a Christian friend that they had. And it was a process, not an instantaneous conversion. Now, God can do that, and I love when he does it, but most of the time, it's through a friend and it's by process. It's when Christians are willing to befriend not yet Christians. I want you to look at uh, this, this image here. It's called the Engel scale. And uh, this, this brother in Christ did a nice job just kind of breaking down the process of someone starting far away from God and actually coming to Christ and then you know, beginning to walk with Christ. And he lays it out this way. Number one, kind of the bottom step there, see it? No awareness of God. And that is a very sad state, like completely even ignorant of God. And there's a lot of people, there's millions of people in the world that are in that state. Number two, some awareness of God, Number three, contact with Christians. Number four, interest in Jesus. Number five, investigating Jesus. Number six, grasp truth about Jesus. Number seven, understand the implications of truth about Jesus. Number eight, acceptance of Christian truth. Number nine, accept, accept implications of becoming a Christian. Number 10, decision to surrender to Jesus. I'd probably use different vocabulary. I would say faith in Christ for salvation. Number 11, gain confidence in their decision. Number 12, experience life change. Number 13, learn basics of faith. 14, learn disciplines. 15, share with others. 16, ongoing growth. What I want you to see there is just, it's not just they're not saved and suddenly they get saved. There's there's this process. That's what I appreciate about this resource, uh, this study that he did. It just shows like the, the multiple subtle changes that happen in a person's heart as they move toward Christ, And we need to understand that. And God is able to miraculously, boom, like bring bring someone from number one to number 10 pretty quickly. And that can happen and does happen. But a lot of times it happens slowly over time. It can happen over weeks, months, years, decades. And we don't know why and how God does that in his plan of election and salvation. We don't know why or how, but it's clear that he does that. And the stories are different for every person. And so Peter goes on and he says, when you give a reason for the hope that you have within you, he says, do it with gentleness and respect. Not like Billy Wiley, but with gentleness and respect. And as I said in that video, nowhere in scripture are we told to be rude or overbearing. There's a story about a man named Lieutenant Hughes, there was a situation with the 101st Airborne in Najaf, Iraq, between an angry mob of Shiites and a heavily armored patrol of the 101st Airborne that happened between the civilians and and, uh, this division. Fearing that the soldiers were preparing to desecrate their holy shrine, hundreds of unarmed civilians pressed in toward the soldiers, and it was getting pretty volatile. So Lieutenant Hughes commanded his troops over the loudspeaker He said, take a knee, look up, smile. And the whole, you know, the the whole division did that. They all got on their knees and they looked up and they smiled. And it completely disarmed the situation. Why? Because they were sending a message. We're friends. We're not here to fight you. We're your friends. It reminds me of a story um, uh, that I heard from... um, Granger Angel, uh, uh, my senior missionary when I was in Tanzania, right out of high school. I spent a gap year in Tanzania, and I stayed with a man named Granger Angel. And Granger had a, a reputation long before I ever met him uh, in the churches that I was a part of at the time, the, the movement that I was a part of. Uh, he had a reputation of being the real Indiana Jones, just tons of adventures for God, and crazy stuff. And uh, so anyway, I I, went, I actually stayed with him and his wife in Africa. And after I got to know him, I said, by the way, did you know that in America you're known as the real Indiana Jones? And it was kind of refreshing. He was so far removed from Western society and culture that his answer to me was, who's Indian Jones? <laughs> so he told me a story about um, uh, years before I, You know, I was with him. Uh, he used to minister to the pygmies. You know what the pygmies are, the, the shortest tribe in Africa? And he would go there and and preach Christ to them. And and he was kind of ongoing work with the pygmies. And so a couple came on a short-term trip from America, and they really wanted to go and see the pygmy tribe and take pictures. And he said, I'll take you. But understand, I'm trying to earn their respect. And uh, he said they're very skittish about pictures. You know, some of them do believe that you're going to take their soul or something, you know, one of those things. So um, when we get there, let me talk to them. And depending on who's there and, you know, how they respond to me, you may or may not be able to take pictures, but I'll try to at least be able to, you know, so we can walk through the village and, and, you know, meet the Pygmy tribe. So he got there and pulled up and he got out of his vehicle, this Land Rover, and the couple stayed in the vehicle. And uh, Granger went up <coughs> to uh, this sort of this leader of this little village. And, and, and he started to talk to him about, you know, whether or not they could take pictures and those things. And all of a sudden, while Granger's talking to this guy, the guy looks around Granger and he just starts losing it. He just freaking out. He starts yelling. He took my picture. And Granger, no, no, didn't. Granger looks back at the Land Rover. He says, "You didn't take this picture, did you?" No, we didn't take. We didn't take the picture. We didn't take your picture. The guy wouldn't have any, any of it. So he was so mad. He picked up stones. And because he's the leader of this village, and people sort of follow suit. And there was a lot of kind of jungle drugs in that, uh, in the pygmy tribe at the time. There's a lot of people like, you know, high on some of those things. They start gathering and very quickly became a violent mob with stones. And they were literally going to stone Granger Angel right there on the spot. End of his missionary career. Because this guy claimed that this American took a picture. And Granger's like, Lord, you said that you would tell me what to say when I'm brought before rulers and authorities. And I need you to do that right now because I don't know what to do here. I need your wisdom. Suddenly he had an idea. And he just trusted that it was the Holy Spirit. He knew what to do. And so he stepped toward kind of the ringleader with the stones, who had the stones in his hand. And he picked him up, hugged him chest to chest and started swinging him around. He said, you pygmies think you know how to dance? I'll show you how to dance. He starts whipping this little pygmy around, his legs flying through the air and Granger's singing this song. And all of a sudden that guy drops his stones and just starts laughing hysterically. And all the other pygmies around, Follow suit. They just they're they're so uh, humored by what's going on, they drop their stones and they just start hysterically laughing and the whole situation was disarmed. I mean, where do you learn that in missionary training? You know? I mean that's just a ghost. (laughs) It's just like God in the moment telling him what to do. You know, if you're ever in a situation where you know the pygmies are gonna stone you, just grab one of them and start dancing and singing, and it'll work out. No, that was just God just giving him wisdom in that moment. But what I want to show you is that both of these stories. You know, Lieutenant Hughes and Granger Angel show us how joy and kindness can disarm hostility. And if you have any question about the nature and doctrine of sin, just look at YouTube comments or Facebook threads, especially over the last year. And I'm not just talking about not yet Christians. I'm talking about Christians battling Christians, Christians being mean to Christians. It's been embarrassing over the last year. Paul, who encouraged Christians to keep their disputes private because he doesn't want to display disunity to unbelievers and shame the name of Christ. We have daily put disputes on display over the last year in a way that has been embarrassing. I think the world needs to see the church get on our knees, pick our faces up and smile and disarm that hostility. Now, I'm not going to just blame the church and say, big, bad church, done it wrong. We have a devil who hates us, and the Bible says the world is under the sway of the evil one, and he is very capable of deceiving people to seeing us the wrong way as well. So that's also in play. So you have a church that has acted in an unbecoming way that doesn't adorn the gospel, and then you combine that with the deceptive powers of Satan, and we have a situation where we have a world and a lot of people in our world who need to see us look up and smile. He says, do this with gentleness and respect. One evangelist said, we must learn the back door to people's hearts because the front door is heavily guarded. I showed this next video we're about to see before. Some of you may have seen it, um, but I thought in light of this series, this would be a good uh, video to watch again. Uh, this guy's an atheist. His name is uh, Penn Gillette, and he tells this story and uh, of an encounter he had he's uh, like i am a kind of a c- comedian magician he tells a story of an encounter he had with a christian so watch this video
1: i want to talk to you about this uh i get home from the show and at the end of the show as i've mentioned before we go out and we uh we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was old on. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so we had the props from that in his hand, because we'd give those away. He had the, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, eh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show, and... Uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it, but he said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought I said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New just part of the New Testament. little book about this big this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself, Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible which had written in it a little note to me uh, not very personal but just you know like your show and so on and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch now I know there's no God and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that uh but I'll tell you he was a very 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 good man and uh that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say.
0: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the guy didn't get saved, right? But But he saw something, didn't he? He didn't, he doesn't know how to describe it, the Bible says, uh, you know, the, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. But it's true that the only Bible some people will read is you. And Paul calls us living epistles read by men. And so he, he read an epistle. He read, uh, he read a Bible when he, when he met this guy. And I think, you know, I love what he was saying about um, if I really believed, you know, how, how, could, I not, how could I not evangelize? Um, Something refreshing about that that video. God's space is where God is felt and encountered in tangible ways that address the longings and cries of the heart. God's space is where gentleness and respect are present, judgment is absent, and divine dialogue flows naturally because trust has been established. God's space is where the invisible principles of God's kingdom are made visible in ways people can see, touch, and feel. God's space is where friends of sinners, in other words, our friends, dwell. God's space is where the topic of God can be explored freely without agendas, biases, and personal convictions getting in the way. God's space is where cynics, skeptics, scoffers, and spiritually curious people alike can raise their questions, share their doubts, voice their concerns, and even vent anger toward God and the church. God's space is where the unworthy can feel safe enough to bring their real selves out into the light and to journey one step at a time toward the magnetic pull that they feel deep in their souls. God space is where spiritual curiosity is aroused and the message of Christianity becomes plausible. <clears throat> I want to finish by just briefly sharing what Doug Pollock in God space calls the 10 spiritual conversation killers. And he points out that if you employ one of these, it'll probably be your last spiritual conversation with that person. And by the way, full disclosure, I've probably like done most of these. Um, And part for me of of relearning how to engage culture and engage people for Christ uh, was having to sort of unlearn some of these forms of spiritual conversation killers that uh, were a big part of my life for a long time. Number one, spiritual conversation killer. An unbelieving heart. Just not believing that people actually want to hear it. And I think he's right. I think, do you really believe that people in your Monday through Saturday world actually want to talk about spiritual things? I mean, you live in the same culture I do. What are the two things you're not supposed to talk about? Religion Religion and politics. And if we buy into that, then what we're really saying is, I don't believe Ecclesiastes 3.11. He's made everything beautiful in its time, and he's put eternity into man's heart. So there's a, I do believe that there is a, there's a place, there's a, there is a context, even with the most, the person with the most polar opposite worldview and the most hostile view toward the Christian faith, there is a place that sometimes we have to work toward and earn the right to unlock that door, that's that God space in their heart and, and, and talk about eternal things. But we have to believe, we have to believe that the harvest is plentiful. We have to believe that God is working in the harvest, and that our, our preaching and our, our mission and our, our, our obedience to God is not futile. Thomas Jefferson said, When the heart is right, the feet are swift. Spiritual conversation killer number two pre conversion history. And Doug Pollock quotes David Kinneman, who in his book Unchristian quoted one outsider who described Christians in this way. Quote, most people I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical empire builders. They want to convert everyone, and they generally cannot live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. Now, I, I don't buy into the idea that it's us and them, that the whole... You know, the whole world is, is set in a hostile disposition toward the church. I think you have people all along the spectrum. You have some people who actually are ripe for the harvest. And I, I think if you engage them and share Christ in a respectful and gentle way and you have that opportunity, I, th- I think there's a lot of people who would come to Christ. Then you have all these people sort of in the middle uh, who are, are shaped by a culture that is hostile toward the faith. And then you do have a group that are extremely hostile toward the Christian faith and see it with antagonism as the great enemy of the world. But like it or not, and as I've said, Satan is working in that, but also I think with our Western Christian culture and the selling of Jesus and the, you know, sort of the goofy, silly presentation of Jesus that is on display in our culture, like it or not, hasn't helped. Christian jewelry, t shirts, TV programs, tracks, billboards, and bumper stickers have all contributed toward a pre conversion history that shapes the perception of every single person that you meet. And some of the stuff we put out there is just plain silly and doesn't help. we you've seen this bumper sticker. Eternity. Smoking or non-smoking? Kind of doesn't help. Or the ichthus, the Christian fish. Real bumper sticker. This fish won't fry. Will you? Again, not, not very helpful. No context at all. Right? It's, it's, it's like... It just assumes that you can like, trap somebody into conversion with like one mic drop bumper sticker. Try Jesus. If you don't like him, Satan will always take you back. Okay, not, not helpful. This car, bumper sticker, this car is prayer conditioned. <laughs> not a joke, really. Christian soldier, nothing goes together like a cross and a gun. Okay, now, no, uh, you know, gun rights, axe grinding or anti-gun anything here. Uh, but again, I, d- does that help? Like, no context at all. Playing into the stereotypes of, of, of the Christian faith, combining, uh, you know, a physical army with the spiritual thing. It's just, the problem with a lot of this stuff is it doesn't have context. And it, it assumes you can trap people with, with a mic drop statement not to mention some of the questionable theology. And we have to get out of their Christian stereotype box, ASAP, if we're going to have real conversations. Otherwise, it's like, nope. Okay, spiritual conversation killer number three, awkward transitions. You know, it's a problem if evangelism becomes, I got to get this message off my chest. Used to be like that for me. I was very legalistic about this. And you can ask my wife, when I was in college, I would feel guilty if I walked from class to the dorm room and I walked by, you know, 30 unbelievers and I didn't share Christ with any of them. Now, I guess the motive at some level is good, but I was under law and evangelism became a guilt trip for me. Where if I'm really not ashamed of Christ, I got to get this message off my chest. And I would have these, I would have these like blindside conversations with people and they were spiritual conversation killers. Awkward trend. Let me how how can I manipulate this conversation to get it to a spiritual conversation? Oh, the, the sun is really bright today. Yes, he is. <laughs> sun is bright. Is he bright in your soul? Hey, did you see the game last night? That game was awesome. Yes, it was. You know what else is awesome? Okay, just shut down, right? Spiritual conversation killer. Okay, number four, Christianese. When we use our language, not theirs. Even good language, even good scriptural language, like you saw there. Have you attained unto the ways of the just? right? Saved, born again, right? Justification, sanctification. All good Bible words, but that's our language. That's that's Bible language. Not to mention some of the... Stuff that has entered like Christian pop culture language that's just plain, you know, goofy. You know? Hello, my name is Kevin Witness. Are you on fire for God? What do you mean? I mean, you need to be committed. No, you need to be committed. What are you talking about? <laughs> what I'm saying is, I love the lamb. The lamb? He's also a lion. Okay, it's Christian Christianese, right? It's just not computing. Spiritual conversation killers. Number five, disrespect. How many of you show up for conversations? I just can't wait to talk to this person that's going to disrespect me and be parental and condescending with me. You're not going to show up for that conversation. So somehow, yes, we have the truth. We have the absolute truth. But Peter says, share it with gentleness and respect. So we have to share it in a way that is winsome. James in the book of James 119 says, be slow to speak. And be quick to listen. You know, when we exceed the social speed limit, run through the stop signs, hijack the conversations, and monologue, that can all be seen as disrespectful. Okay. Spiritual conversation. Killer number six just having an agenda in the conversation, you know? It, having an outcome where it, it has to end here or I failed. Trap conversations. A conversation that doesn't have a natural course but is manipulated by the one at the helm. It's got an obvious script to guide the conversation. Matter of fact, a few years ago, uh, actually quite a long time ago, Heidi and I went up to Traverse City, Michigan. I had a friend, actually a family member, uh, involved in a ministry up there. And they were doing like some big citywide crusade in in Traverse City, Michigan. And uh, was it Traverse City? Maybe it was, okay. And uh, yeah, they had a a guy on staff with this evangelistic ministry who was an insurance salesman. And he was going to train everybody for how to do evangelism. And so, literally, the first thing he said was, I sold a ton of insurance. Jesus told me, I can sell Jesus, and I'm going to show you how. And then he began to use some of the same manipulative sales things that they would use in evangelism, including including the Sullivan nod. You know the Sullivan nod, right? You've heard of that before, haven't you? Like, all these little tricks and things, and... And then I watched them go out in the street and do it. And you know they claimed all these conversions. But what they had was people who were in these trap conversations and were trying to get out as quickly as possible. And so following the script as quickly as possible and giving the answers that obviously the person wanted to hear. And then they claimed thousands of conversions. And I doubt if any of them got saved. It was just manipulation and played right into this whole uh, culture that is set against the Christian faith because of some of these silly things that we do. Doug Pollock says... Spiritual conversations should be our ultimate motive, not our ulterior motive. Number seven, spiritual conversation killer, control. We all want to play in our home field, right? You're Buffalo Bills, you like the home, you like the home games, Buffalo Bills fans. Or you don't like to go to Miami, because you know it usually doesn't go good for you down in Miami, right? Especially when we draft guys like Jalen Phillips and you know, Jalen Waddell. I mean, it's not gonna be good for you down, but you want to play at home. Sorry. Same thing, though, I think in evangelism. We we want people to come to our space right here in the church. We want people to... I want to control the conversation. I want to talk about what I want to talk about, and I'm going to get the outcome that I want to get. And we're always playing on our home field. But we have to be willing to be in situations that we're not comfortable in that are out of our control. We've got to be willing to play road games. Because the bottom line is, real evangelism is not something you can schedule on a Sunday morning or on a Friday night outreach. Real evangelism happens in the flow of life and it's often disruptive and annoying. We've had people knocking on our door. We're like, Heidi's like, time for mission. I'm making dinner right now. It's going to take me an hour, but it's time. This is what we prayed for. As a neighbor knocks on the door with some dire situation and needs ministry. I remember few years back, we had some different neighbors than we had now, and I knew that they had just lost a loved one, and it was a very close loved one. And I'm getting out of my car, walking into the house, and I look over, and they're all out on their porch, and I know they're grieving. I know it's they're right in the midst of grief. And the Holy Spirit's like, it's time. Okay, all right. So I went over, and they're talkers. I knew it would take me some time, aren't they? So I went over, and I just said, uh, hey, uh, I heard about what's going on, and I just want you to know just how sorry I am, and we're praying for you. Half hour, 45 minutes later, eulogizing their loved one, talking about how much they loved him and what he meant to the funny stories, and it was almost like I wasn't there. It just, just prompted this back and forth between you know, these family members. And one of the things Doug Pollock talks about that I'll get into in a later message is asking spirit-led conversations so I'm sitting there and I'm going, Holy Spirit, help me. Give me a spirit-led, uh, I'm sorry, spirit-led question. Give me a spirit-led question. Spirit-led question. And I had it. And and when I had a break in in the conversation, I said, can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what happens after you die? No, I, we've been wondering that. You know, I, I don't know. I'd, I, I'd lean more you know, atheistic. I mean, and you're six feet under. He wasn't hostile about it. It's just kind of his beliefs. And then, She's like, well, I think, I think there is a, spirit, a spiritual world, and, and uh, there's a heaven, and I believe. I said, well, can I tell you what the Bible says? And I just explained from Scripture the coming judgment, heaven and hell, and the need for faith in Christ. And I just had this opportunity, because we'd had a long-term relationship with them. <clears throat> I was playing a road game on their time, on their turf, letting them control the conversation, and God gave me an opportunity in the midst of that to bring Christ into that situation. We can't always be in control. Jesus said, don't worry when you're brought before rulers and authorities. I'll tell you what to say in that time. And so we don't always need this script. Sometimes we just need to be available to God in that moment. You know, Ronnie's here today. And Ronnie, Nate, and I were on, a, on the same team to Turkey back in the early 2000s. <clears throat> we were in the city of Bursa, uh, 1.5 million people in the city and about 30 Christians. And uh, we attended the one church. So we did a concert on a college campus, and they said, they said you, can, uh, you can talk about what Jesus means to you, but the local police say not to, it's illegal to proselytize, so don't ask or make an appeal for people to accept Christ publicly. But afterwards, as you're talking to students, just be led of the Spirit. Okay, so we had a good concert. It was very well received, and a lot of students hung out in the kind of the open courtyard between the dormitories, and we were sitting there talking to them. And uh, I was sitting there talking to a, a young woman uh, a student who was a Muslim and she asked me if I'd ever read the Quran were you sitting with me I thought? no you were uh, somewhere else in the quad yeah because you didn't go to the, you didn't go to jail with me <clears throat> so um, she asked me have you ever have you ever read the Quran and I said actually I have uh, I said have you ever read the the Bible have you ever read the New Testament the Injil she said uh, I've never even seen one I'm like, oh. so I know if I turn to a roadie and I'm like Hey, go get me a go get me an Injil. And uh, the guy went and brought six, and like a <clears throat> like a card dealer, just you know. Started. And it's police everywhere. It's like they're watching us. Like they're literally watching us. And he's just like Bible, 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 Bible. And all of a sudden, like this this girl, this this co- female college student, gets this New Testament. And you would think we just pulled out like jewelry, precious rare jewelry, because all these students started gathering and hovering over her back, like whoa, a Bible, I mean, Muslims. A New Testament? Wow, I've never seen one. Sure enough, here comes a police officer. He says, come with me, please. So he arrested me, another band member, and a roadie. And they throw us into the back of this you know, like paddy wagon type thing. And we're li- literally looking out the back window and, you know to, at Ronnie. And we're just like, Gu- guys! You know? we, he didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was going on. You know? and I, I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh Lord, I've, I've heard about what happens in Turkish jails. And... Uh, <clears throat> I said, uh, remember that time when you said when we're brought before rulers and authorities? Well, now you can do that. And we, we were brought in right into the police chief's office. We, we all sat there and we were flanked by police. And, and the policeman who uh, arrested us held up the Bible that we handed out like a bag of drugs. And he, right next to the police chief, and he's just like, they're handing this out. And the police chief got mad. And he's like, this is a Muslim country. You can't do this. And we'd been praying. We're like, Lord, tell us what to say. And we knew what to say. We said, you'll have to forgive us. We're just stupid American tourists. And the guy goes, yes. This I can clearly see. And we said, well, here's the thing. America's a democracy. And we heard Turkey's a democracy. Isn't that true? Isn't it a democratic form of government? uh, Yes. Well, that's the problem. In America, on a college campus, you could say anything you want. Clearly, you can't hear. So clearly, your democracy is different than our democracy. He got mad and offended at that. No, it's not. We have the same democracy. No, we don't, because we're in your office right now. He goes, get out of here. And he sent us out, and we sat down in the hall and waited. While we waited, a few minutes later, this guy in his suit came in with a briefcase, the equivalent of the DA of the, of the city of Bursa. He comes in. He just looks over at us turns away, walks into the police chief's office, slams the door, and for a few minutes, it was just Turkish barking. And it just... <laughs> and then he left, in a huff. We found out later that what he said to the police chief was, what they're doing is an illegal... What you're doing is illegal. And before you let these guys go, you need to apologize to them. So he brought us in and he's like, you know, sorry. Sorry, apparently we're trying to learn how to function as a democracy. And clearly, clearly I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, we're sorry. Gospel opportunity. Hey, Jesus forgives us our sins. We forgive you. It's okay. And we forgive you of your sins. And then he picked the The Bible up again. He says, "But don't hand this out again." One of our guys said, "You don't want us to hand out that again?" He said, "Yes, don't hand this out." So we agreed that we would not hand out that particular New Testament again. We just handed out all the other ones. Talk about a road game—totally out of our control. But God was in this, right? It was for the glory of God, and and. And the Holy Spirit gave us what to say. And we have to be willing to be out of our comfort zones and vulnerable like that in spaces and places and conversations that we are not in control of. Okay, number eight, judgment. I'll just say this. We have to learn how to be farmers, not policemen. Evangelism is not pulling somebody over theologically and saying, no, 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 no. It's about sowing seed and being more like a farmer. A lot of the pictures of the gospel growing are agricultural in scripture. You look at the way Jesus radically accepted the prostitute in Luke 7, who came to him, and the religious community rejected her. Because sometimes when we share Christ, and when people hear that we're a Christian, what they even though we, we may love, love the sinner but hate the sin, what people hear is: I not only don't accept your worldview, I don't accept you. Doug Pollack says, Acceptance does not mean endorsement. When we confuse the two we destroy the very space that God wants to work in. Number nine, combativeness. Dallas Willard said, it's very difficult to be right about something without hurting someone with it. That was a problem I had in college was I was very good at apologetics. I learned how to defend the faith and I would win arguments and lose souls. And so just being combative and having to win an argument, that's that's a spiritual conversation killer. And finally, number 10, He just calls it, it's all about me. Ever been in a one-sided conversation with a person? We become the grand lecturer, the great monologue. And the secret to being interesting is being interested. That we are willing to listen, as James says, slow to speak, quick to listen. So will you engage the mission of Jesus Christ? Remember that Jesus was the first great evangelist. You talk about a road game. The one who left heaven and came to this world. He left his home field to play an away game here. He preached the gospel to us. And like the prostitute in Luke chapter 7, he gave us radical grace and radical acceptance. And we are all spiritually what this prostitute in Luke 7 was naturally. We've all sinned. None of us are deserving of his love or deserving of salvation. But he gave it anyway because his mission took him to the cross. And now we believe when we receive that as a gift. And I pray that you've received that gift of salvation yourself. If you're young or old, if you're 80 or eight, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey with God, but I want to encourage you today to go to Jesus Christ and trust in him for your salvation and follow him. Application to this message, number one, I want to encourage you to make space in your life and schedule for the mission of Jesus and then find your space where is that God's space in your life? Where are those relationships? And in just a minute, as we close, I want to pray for specific people in our lives. I want to listen to the Holy Spirit and let him speak certain people into our hearts and minds that we could pray for today. Number three and number four are just from the text that we read today, 1 Peter 3.15. Be prepared. If somebody asked you, why are you a Christian? What would you say? Why do you believe? What would you say? What is the gospel? What would you say? When I was kind of debriefing the message with my boys last night on the way home, uh, we were talking about some of the scriptures in Romans. And I said, yeah, we, we should memorize those. We're going to memorize the Romans road as a family. Romans 3.23, 6.23, Romans 8.1, and Romans 10.9. Four verses just to kind of get in your head so that when you're asked for the hope you have within you and you have an opportunity, you have some gospel verses that you can bring into the conversation to express what salvation means. Again, that was Romans 3.23, 6.23, 81 and 10.9. And finally, be gentle and be respectful. Let God lead the way. You don't have to close the deal. You don't have to close the deal. Uh, you don't have to save anybody. Jesus is the one who saves souls. You just have to be available and ready and willing to be a useful vessel for him, for his name's sake. Let's pray. I want to pray two things. Number one, a response from us to God about engaging in mission. Number two, I want to pray for some of our friends. So, first of all, I want to give us a chance to respond right where you are. Like Isaiah did, when the Lord said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Will you say, here am I, send me. And there's no conditions on that, by the way. It's not here am I, send me, as long as it's not here or there, it's not this or that. Just... I'm available. Use me like you want. Take me where you want me to go. Give me wisdom to see it. If that's you, just say those words to God today. Here am I. Send me. I'm available. Show me how. Show me where. Where's the God space in my life? Use me, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And then number two, right now I just want you to Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and mind the names of certain people in your life that he wants you to be praying for their salvation. Maybe it's the first time anybody has prayed for their salvation. That's a great start. People you know. People you used to know. People you'd like to know. Holy Spirit, speak to us right now. Move our hearts with what moves yours. And help us, Lord, to be to begin the good habit of praying for the salvation of not yet Christians in our lives, that we could change our world. And Lord, give us wisdom and opportunities and discernment to know when you're opening the door in a moment for us to be able to share the gospel or display the gospel. So right now, in your own words, just pray for those friends that the Lord's putting on your heart. as we close in worship now, let us remember that you don't want laborers, you want worshipers. If we're worshipers, we'll be laborers. Help us to be in awe of you, in awe of Jesus and what he's done. And that we'd say like Paul the Apostle did, it's the love of Christ that compels me to go. In Jesus' name, amen.